Welcome to the ASC podcast, Cytopath Pod. Join special guests to highlight ASC activities in cytopathology education, advocacy, and research. Hello, everybody. My name is Jonas Hyman. I'm one of the junior cytologists at Wild Cornell Medicine in New York City. I'm also a member of the Research and Current Concepts Committee here at the American Society of Cytopathology. And today I'm delighted to be here with the winner of the 2022 Bernard Naylor Award for Cytomorphology for his paper entitled Cytomorphologic Features of Introductal Salivary Gland Carcinoma, a multi-institutional study of 13 FNA cases with histologic molecular and clinical correlations, a mouthful, but also a good representation of what's in the paper. Doctor, would you like to introduce yourself to the audience? Sure. Hi, everybody. Uh, my name is Karthik Vishwanathan. I am currently an assistant professor here at Emory University, and I practice um, head and neck pathology, surgical pathology, um, and uh, cytopathology, and uh, and I am the primary author of this paper, and it is my absolute pleasure to talk with Dr. Heyman today. Um, uh, I'm I'm flattered, Doctor. Uh, you know, this is a really remarkable paper that you have written, and like it like it says in the title, it is a multi-institutional work. Um, how how did you start this? How did you get all of these people together to write this remarkable paper? Yeah, it was actually pretty difficult. Uh, it, there are a lot of challenges when you're trying to coordinate, you know, multiple eminent people at, you know, at various institutions. Um, and you can see that the list is quite long, uh, you know, in terms of the number of authors, um, you know, Zara Malecki, Dr. Nishino, um, Dr. Rao, um, Dr. Belosh, you know, all of these are are eminent, well-known people in, in, in the cytology community. And, um, you know, I really do appreciate the fact that they were able to contribute cases of what is essentially a very rare entity um, in salivary gland pathology. Um, I will say that, uh, you know, Dr. Sadow and Dr. Fakewin would be sort of the, my primary mentors on, on this project. And they were the, 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 they were the primary reason that uh, we were able to push this. The, the reason we thought about this project was um, around 20, this is a, this was published in 2021, but around about a few years prior to that, um, there were several studies that were coming out um, looking at this quote unquote introductal carcinoma. Now that in itself is, we can talk about that, uh, that sort of that terminology, but there was a lot of research that was coming out at the time and there was very little uh, evidence or evidence in terms of the cytologic features uh, for this particular entity, just, you know, restricted to a few case reports, uh, the case, a couple of case series, but not a whole lot of data. So we wanted to try to sort of add to the literature um, with respect to that. So um, it was a it was a lot of coordination, but uh, but you know everyone contributed a, a contributed a lot, and uh, we're very proud of this uh, this work that we put in. Um, as as you should be, you know I I think it's so important for these rare entities to get these descriptions out there. Um, this is this is not the only entity you know with a kind of molecular definition that you've described in the past. Um, uh, we. I think, can, can you tell us a little bit about where you see 
this field going, particularly in head and neck, but really in all cytology sites, what, what is the role of morphology going to be moving forward when we have so many other tools at our disposal, molecular, um, AI, digital pathology? Where, where, where do you see this going? I mean, I don't, I think, you know, historically we started off with morphology, um, you know, looking specifically at certain cytol, uh, you know, cytoplasmic features, nuclear features, for example, salivary duct carcinoma having that abundant oncocytic type site or epocrine type cytoplasm, big nuclei that, you know, pleomorphic prominent nucleoli. And we still will do rely on these morphologic features. The challenge is now that as we have started to understand uh, a variety of these salivary gland lesions, um, the, the issue is that a lot of the morphology tends to overlap between these lesions. And if you think about, uh, for example, you know, a lot of the cases uh, that, you know, secretory carcinomas is sort of a a nice example, you know, a lot of those cases had been initially classified as a cynic cell carcinoma. Um, and then as you, as we got a better molecular understanding of, uh, you know, identifying the ETV6 and track rearrangement of the BIM, you know, red rearrangements, et cetera, we were able to then sort of shift it to its own sort of category. And I think molecular, these molecular tools that we have are helpful um, to sort of you know, give patients a sense of exactly what the diagnosis is. Um, so one is correct classification with molecular tools, but also from a therapeutic aspect, right? A lot of these patients, uh, generally speaking, most of these end up being low-grade tumors and they can, they, they can be conservatively excised. But for patients, you know, who have high-grade malignancies, um, where the morphology does overlap a lot, so it's hard to be sure what you're dealing with, uh, if they're not able to, if they're not surgical candidates, um, or if they need systemic therapy, molecular tools are important to help identify, you know, potential potential targetable um, alterations. So I think I think molecular is uh, is absolutely going to be essential in the future. Uh, that being said, you know, a lot of it, a lot of institutions um, that is not the U.S. right outside of the U.S. You know, they may not necessarily have access to molecular tools at this moment, maybe it'll, my hope is it'll change in the future, um, but for them, morphology will still be essential. And the WHO does rely a lot uh, on morphology. The other challenge with molecular sometimes is that not all molecular tools end up working. For example, if you think about salivary duct carcinoma, right? Oh, sorry, introductal carcinoma. Uh, you have NCOA4 ret you know, fusions that, that, that define a subset of them. And um, certain molecular techniques may not work. So for example, fish may not, may not work. In fact, you may get false negatives. You kind of require sequencing. So not all molecular tools are equal either. So in which case you kind of still come back to morphology to some extent to sort of at least put you in um, a certain category. So for example, is it an oncocytoid neoplasm? Is it basaloid and, and so forth? So I think there is, I, I think molecular is going to enhance our diagnostic capability and our treatment capability, but I don't think we're going to completely uh, exclude morphology by any means. Um, just also from a resource standpoint and also just everything is expensive. Everything costs something. So I think you want to be judicious in terms of what tests you choose uh, to do. Sorry, that was a very long winded answer to your question, but I, I think it is, I think, you know, uh, I don't think anything will ever really go away in terms of morphology. 
Um, you know, I happen to agree. And and just just to emphasize your point, um, you know, fish is not always the easiest test to interpret either, right? Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, and setting up, uh, you know, NGS programs is not always the easiest thing to do, you know, and I really appreciate the really granular detail you go into in this paper. Uh, personally, I think it's helpful for patient care, but also in a kind of a teaching um, sense, you know, when you wrote this, you were a trainee. Um, uh, you you have moved moved on up in the world, so to so to speak. Uh, do you find that this kind of granular detail helps you as a teacher as well as uh, as a clinician and a and a researcher? Yeah, I think you you know, as you had point mentioned um, previously, you know, having. Um, it, you know, there's just so many, so many different salivary gland neoplasms, and um, it's continuously expanding. And I think uh, from a, for trainees, you know, they're just starting out, and they have to kind of take things step by step. And morphology is the way to start. That's the first thing they're going to see, whether they're a trainee, whether they become an, when they when they become an attending. Um, morphology is key, and um, they kind of have to know all those little details. For example. Let's take surgical thought. Let's let's look at the adenoid cystic carcinoma, right? You have sort of the biphasic, you, you know, it's a biphasic tumor. Uh, you have to look at the the myoepithelial cells. They have these small hyperchromatic nuclei. So all of those little details eventually sort of, when you add them all together, sort of create a picture. And then based on that, you can come up with a diagnosis. In most cases, honestly, the morphology you can really sort of nail down like, okay, this is probably going to be adenoid cystic. Now, granted, it's not not a perfect, you know, it's not perfect, uh, but 90% of the times you're going to be correct. Uh, and so I think these sort of research projects that, uh, you know, for example, the study, but also all the other studies that are published looking at morphology, um, sort of identify these small details that then trainees can use when, when they are approaching their cases. Uh, and then based on that, they can create their own differential and, and you know, think about what diagnosis it is, and then sort of select the tests accordingly. So I think having these kinds of projects with all of these details uh, is helpful. Now, one may make an argument, oh, if you have too many details, you know, you could get lost in the process and, and you may, it may lead to more confusion. But, but I think sometimes at least having that information is better than not having it at all. Absolutely. I, I absolutely agree. And, um, you know, salivary gland, which you, I guess you sign out both in the cytology and the histology realm is, uh, there's so, it's such a diverse set of tumors um, that it's, you know, I think it's especially helpful in that setting. Um, I know you've published quite a bit in, in the uh, realm of salivary gland tumors. What, what drew you initially to head and neck into salivary gland in particular? Yeah, so I actually have to credit my mentors at Cornell, actually. So uh, I, I remember doing my um, head and neck rotation with um, Dr. Teresa Stonemilio, um, and I, I appreciated the fact that she was, she was very pragmatic about her approach to uh, both uh, salivary gland tumors, but also uh, one of my passions is thyroid. And so I, I do appreciate how she used to approach her thyroid cases. Um, but in terms of salivary gland cytology, uh, that I have to credit um, Dr. Rama Rao, um, who is 
currently at Montefiore, but is going to be going to Cleveland Clinic. Um, but she, we had published a study in 2018 looking at the Milan system for salivary gland cytopathology, uh, which is a six-tiered reporting system. But at the time, it was just coming out. It had just come out in March 2018. I remember this. And uh, we, prior to that, we were like, she, she had suggested that I start looking into this uh, system, looking at our cases. And it was just uh, just working with her, going through the process with her, looking at all these various cases of these different salary gland tumor types with her. I think was to me so much, I, I, had a job, I had a blast just doing that with her, just sort of learning from her, learning her approach um, to cytology. And I think her excitement probably was contagious. And so I got excited by the whole process. And so that's how I started, that's how I got interested in, in head and neck cytopathology. Um, so I credit both of them uh, for, for really inspiring me to, to, to explore these, uh, these fields. I, you know, I think uh, just uh, a slight tangent just to to mention that Dr. Rao has been a guest on this podcast oh, in okay. previous episodes, and and uh, I highly recommend um, the the episode that she did on on teaching. If anybody who's listening has a chance to go back and listen to that, um, I also will say that uh, uh, you know you were our trainee with us, and uh, we really appreciated having you. I think I speak for myself and and Dr. Rao uh, as well. Um, uh, you know, it is it is really rewarding to be a teacher and a student and a clinician. Um, you know, in this in this kind of project, to you, what's really the most most rewarding is it is it the learning aspect? Um, is it the chance to collaborate? Is it the chance to help patients, or is it kind of some combination of all of all three, or something else? Yeah. So for me, I yeah, it's a combination of all three. I mean, if you look at the list of names on the author list, I mean, I got a chance to work with you know Peter Seda, who is well known in term, in terms of thyroid and salivary gland uh, surgical pathology. Uh, Bill Faquin, I mean, he is one of the the creators of the Milan system. Uh, we have Zara Malecki, Michia Nishino, who is, I mean, they're also exceptionally well-known, uh, both in thyroid, salivary glands, cytopathology, Zabara Belosh. I mean, who doesn't know his name? So it's, and Dr. Rao, of course. So uh, it's, who is also established in her own right. So it's just like, for me, this project gave me a chance to learn from, from, these, from these eminent folks, um, their approach to, to cases, um, especially, you know, in terms of how they're collecting their data, what stains they did, for example, when they were dealing with these cases. Um, you know, I had a chance to sit with Bill and look at all these individual 13 cases. And so it is nice to sort of see how, what his thinking, his thought process was. Um, and it was definitely, as a trainee for me, you know, sort of an opportunity to sort of think about, oh, how, how would I want my style to be? Uh, when I'm an attending. So I was able to sort of pick things from each of these folks and sort of try to incorporate it into my, my own style. Uh, from a clinical aspect, I feel like um, I feel like the research is beautiful in that the more, if you do something that you're passionate about, then you, uh, you learn a lot more about the entity, but you also, you know, by just by extension, when you're trying to learn about the differential, you just gain a lot more knowledge in the process. And I think it makes you a better 
um, pathologists. So I think research is actually an important part of, you know, educating others, of course, but also educating yourself. Um, and then uh, in terms of, uh, yeah, just as an experience as a whole, like I think for me, it's just, it was just a wonderful experience. And then the collaboration aspect, like I think the beauty of collaborations is that it also gives um, trainees an opportunity to network um, with faculty at other institutions. You never, you never know um, what might open up, you know, and I, you know, like for example, job prospects, if you think about, but you never know just by networking, uh, it gives the your collaborators a chance to see your work, get a sense of your work ethic, how hardworking you are. And you never know what opportunities might open up in the process. So I think from all of those standpoints, um, you know, I, I personally think I, I gained a lot uh, from doing this project. And, and also the beauty of collaborations is that it could lead to subsequent projects with, with the same people or through them, you might connect with other people and have other projects as well. I, you know, I think that's, I think that's terrific advice. Um, you know, we, we expect to see a lot more great research coming out of the trainees, you know, around the country and around the world. Um, hopefully we'll see them uh, at the meeting of the American Society of Cytopathology. Um, is there anything specific that, that happened in this project? I don't know, through collaboration, maybe uh, trouble with the IRB, trouble with accessing specimens, anything specific, um, any challenges that you would, uh, that you would uh, recommend overcoming or, or anticipate needing to overcome for trainees who are looking to build their own projects in the future? I would, I think for, for me, uh, in terms of specific challenges, I think, you know, most, inst we, most institutions have their own IRBs. Um, so generally speaking, um, this was a retrospective study and uh, essentially we just had each of the collaborators collect the data uh, for us and send it over. So it wasn't as much of a challenge in that sense, but I think what you, what I think trainees should realize is that some of these multi-institutional studies take a lot of time. Um, and, and it's just, you know, everyone is in, in attending or, you know, their your, your mentors are attendings and they're actively on service, you're signing out cases, and uh, it just takes time for them to, to step away from that role and, you know, get into that research role and collect data, which, you know, takes time to pull the cases and so forth. So, I would say that the trainees really need a lot of patience. And I have to keep reminding myself that as well, because I tend to be a very impatient person sometimes. Because I like the idea of things moving, and I'll be completely honest about that. And uh, I think for me, that was probably one of the challenges that I had to keep. I would I, I felt like sometimes I was almost pestering people, but it was, but I but I also understood that um, you know, this is not their only primary thing. They have other things going on in their lives, like their clinical work and just their lives. So um, so it's just one of those things. I think patients, um, when doing any of these multi-institutional studies is is absolutely um, essential. That's what I would say. Yeah, I, I think that's I think that's great advice. And um, you know, salivary gland in particular really is a rich area, in which I hope to see more trainees with projects. You know, especially with the new edition of the Milan system coming out, hopefully soon. Um, where where do you see 
uh, research in this field going? And are there other entities that we think you think we need to look at? Are there other entities that you're looking at? What's what's next for you and for this field? Any other projects in the works? Sure. Um, so yeah, the Milan system is exciting that the Milan system is coming out. Hopefully, at knock on wood, at some point, um, you know, this year. Um, from my understanding is that, um, you know, the first edition of the, the Milan system did establish um, a lot of morphologic, criteria, you know, criteria for classifying certain lesions um, as in a particular category. Um, I think now with this new Milan, but during that period from 2018 to now, one, there have been a lot more entities that have come out. Um, so, inter, I mean, interdental carcinoma was discovered in 2006, but I and it was included in the 2017 WHO. But it is relatively new in the sense that we're getting more knowledge about the various red alterations. There are four different subtypes apparently now of interdental carcinoma, and the question is: is should we even call it interdental carcinoma? Anyway, that's a digression. But the um, for the Milan system, I think what's happening is that there's going to be incorporation of more molecular aspects to it. Um, the other thing is, um, I have to give a shout out to um, Dr. Christopher Griff Griffith, who is at the Cleveland Clinic, who did propose a classification system for salivary gland cytopathology back in 2015. And I think that at the time he had proposed looking at uh, the matrix quality as well. You know, is it, do you see hyaline globules? Is it tumor oncocytoid? Is it basaloid? And that's relevant, particularly for the SOMP uh, the salivary gland neoplasm uncertain malignant potential category because it helps to sort of classify it in a certain way and that can have associated risk of malignancies etc so i think there's going to be a refinement of some of these categories there's going to be incorporation of molecular uh of molecular tools in a lot of these categories let me give you another example ascinic cell carcinoma right you know at one point it was pre essentially morphology right you have your beautiful basophilic zymogen granule. Now you have molecular tools that can help you diagnose and challenging, diagnose it in challenging cases. For example, NR4A3, the immunostain for, for a cynic, it's exceptionally sensitive, 95% sensitive, 90% um, specific. So, you know, there are molecular, the molecular features of a lot of these tumors are gonna be incorporated, I believe in, in the upcoming Milan system. So that'll be exciting. In terms of other entities to look at, I mean, it just the if you look at if you look at the upcoming WHO, the fifth edition, I just feel like it just continues to expand. Um, just our understanding of the various entities, um, and you know, truth be told, I don't. There are so many very like, for example, the sclerosing. Uh, I want to say sclerosing microcystic adenocarcinoma. Um, and I'm probably mixing it up with two different entities that have very similar names, but there. Are, but the, but the impressive thing I is do I do it all the time with the trainees. I you know I tell them, uh, you know, take everything I say with a grain of salt, and you know the names of these entities are going to change. Right? right, and I just have the you know if I ever have a question, I'm like, let's look it up right now while we're at the scope. And and it is you know they're they're just uh, they're just so many different entities coming up these days. Um, and for example, or actually even for pre for existing entities, our understanding is continuously increasing. So for example, I know that the Dr. Belosh and, and colleagues had published a recent paper in, in, AJ, in AJ, AJCP looking at carcinoma expleomorphic adenomas and some of their molecular features, et cetera, in the literature, from the literature, et cetera. Uh, so 
it's I think our understanding is continuing to evolve. And I think now more people are going to go back to the earlier entities to sort of further refine it, uh, get a better understanding of their molecular uh, features as well. So, for example, epithelial myopathial carcinoma. I mean, the papers that have come out, talk, uh, you know, exploring RAS alterations, um, but but also Justin Bishop put out a paper recently looking at intercalated duct lesions. And so, so you know, there's just a lot of uh, striated duct adenoma. There's just so much that we're that you know we're exploring these days with molecular tools, so I think that'll continue to that'll just continue to evolve and add to the existing literature. In terms of myself, I haven't uh, really haven't really done a, a whole lot more recently in salivary gland cytopathology. I'll be honest. I've been because I've been I've been interested. I've always loved thyroids, and so that's been kind kind of where I've headed for a little bit. But I but I know that I'm going to be working with um, Dr. Lubin, who's one of my colleagues here at Emory, who's also well established, uh, and he loves salivary gland cytopathology. So I'll probably collaborate with him a little bit, and uh, we'll we'll come up with something something to do. Well, I I look forward to to seeing it. I look forward to reading it, and maybe having you and and maybe Dr. Lubin at some point on on, on the podcast. Um, they, they do call us twins, apparently. So. Yeah. <laughs> I've 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 heard that, um, but uh, yeah. So I, again, congratulations on just an outstanding outstanding piece of work, um, and it's great to see you again uh, in your in your new new digs uh, down in Atlanta, um, and um, uh, yeah, thank you thank you for being a guest on this podcast. And um, uh, I hope everybody enjoyed our our little chat. Thank you so much, Dr. Heyman. I appreciate the invite. Thank you for listening to Cytopath Pod. You can reach ASC on Twitter at Cytopathology or via email at asc at cytopathology.org. Cytopathology.